Welcome to the Hot Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I am beyond honored to have Mr. Leonard Perlmutter from the American Meditation Institute. How are you, sir? I am very well. Thank you for the invitation, Lori. Well, thank you for coming. Um, we had a wonderful conversation, I believe it was last week. Was it last week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was last week. And boy, the time was just flying by. And uh, it's fascinating. Someone referred uh, you to me to speak to you and really wanted to talk to you about the work that you're doing with physicians and burnout, but there's more to that um, than what you guys do. You also have written the book, The Heart and Science of Yoga. I'll share that. This is like an encyclopedia of some amazing information that for my mind, because this is so new um, that I'm just, I, I start thinking about things and then I get distracted and then I don't keep reading. I just start thinking about things. Or I guess it's probably what you wanted. You wanted to challenge our thoughts and think about different things and because like you said you're complex animals so we are complex yes so before you can you know anybody can just start with where wherever they're at uh i did not start with yoga i did not start with meditation i started with diet uh i uh, grew up uh uh as uh uh many of us did uh, uh eating a standard american diet and uh, gee, uh, from early childhood, uh, uh, I had digestive problems, uh, just a lot of pain. Uh, it was also a little bit complicated by the fact that I was raised in a Jewish family, and uh, I had a stereotypical Jewish mom. She loved me. I loved her. Uh, and uh, uh, it seemed that uh, one way that I could demonstrate my love was to eat the food that she prepared for me, because it always brought a smile to her face. Uh, that was good on that level. On the, on the other hand, uh, it was a challenge for my body. Uh, it just couldn't uh, digest, uh, uh, that kind of food very well. And so, uh, uh, it wasn't until, uh, I had actually, uh, graduated college. Uh, when, when I went out on my own, uh, uh and went off to school, uh, things were better because I was choosing food, um, myself. Uh, but my life uh, really took an important shift when I was having a Thanksgiving dinner with friends uh, in Washington, D.C., where uh, I was going to law school at the time. And uh, this woman uh, whom I was dating was seated across the table from me. And uh, I noticed about halfway through the meal, uh, she pushed her plate away from her. And that caught my eye. Uh, and I said to her, uh, Emily, uh, is there a problem? And she said something to me that, that really uh, changed my life. And it was, no problem, I'm full. <laughs> wow, I said to myself, this is really a novel concept. Right. Uh, because uh, at that point, uh, m- I would say most of the time when I ate, uh, I went into an unconscious state, okay? And the only thing that would uh, 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 bring me into a conscious state was uh, sort of a Pavlovian response of, of an empty plate. So I would eat in an unconscious state. When the plate was empty, I would sort of wake up, and the first thought that generally came into my awareness was, what's next? <laughs> do you think that's what most people do? I mean, that we yeah. we're trained to eat when we're working and yes. we're not, it's not a, a mindful eating. No, so it's do not. You, 
And, so that was a surprise to you that you could have mindful eating. Was that kind of like the shock or the the start was, of that? It was that I could I could be awake while I'm while I'm eating, and uh-huh. uh, and why am I eating, and uh, what do I uh, what do I want from this food? Uh, uh, am I supposed to just eat food uh, that I love? Uh, because if that's true, if, uh, a lot of that's making me sick. Uh, so maybe I should eat food that loves me. And I began to experiment with that. And I later found out that, gee, that's yoga science. <laughs> hmm. So describe for us what yoga science is. What is, what is that definition? Help someone who's never heard of those terms before put together. You know, you've heard yoga and science, but yoga science, what, what does that mean? Well, yoga science, it's, it's the oldest form of mind-body medicine uh, in the world. Uh, it's also the origin uh, of all the world religions. Uh, it's an educational body of knowledge uh, that teaches us how to experiment with different kinds of relationships. Whenever we have a relationship, it means one thing. It means that we have to take some form of an action. And an action could be mental, because even a thought is an action. It could be verbal, like I'm speaking to you now, uh, or it could be physical. And whenever we take an action in a relationship, it always brings about a consequence that can lead us in one direction or another. So what yoga science provides us is a template for making conscious discriminating choices. We want to be happy, we want to be healthy, we want to be secure, we want loving, nurturing, creative relationships. So the question is, how are we gonna get to point B from point A? Most of us do not have a philosophy of life that will help direct us toward the consequence that we truly desire. So what yoga provides is a template, a framework for making conscious discriminating choices. And yoga provides a mechanism which we refer to as the bridge of yoga. Yoga means union. And from a yoga perspective, that union that is spoken of essentially is a mechanism for basing my outer actions, thoughts, words, and deeds with my own inner intuitive wisdom. So the hypothesis starts out with uh, Uh, the statement that uh, if I want to be happy and I want to be healthy and I want to be secure, then I need to base my thoughts, my words, and my actions on my own inner intuitive wisdom. If I can do that, everything I need will come to me and I will be able to fulfill the purpose of my life without pain, without misery, or bondage. If, however, there's a disconnect between my outer actions, thoughts, words, or deeds, and my own inner intuitive wisdom, that inner conflict must express itself through outer conflict. And so inner conflict is the mother of all problems. And the first relationship that we have, which is outside the mind, so to speak, is the body. So the body experiences pain and it communicates that pain to us. And if we don't heed the lesson at a low decibel level, where there's dis-ease and stress and anxiety, then the decibel level will get louder and louder and louder, and it will ultimately morph into some form of disease. Mm. 
This is really fast. There's so much I could talk to you just in the statements that you said. So it's interesting. So it's almost like you're saying that our actions have to align with our values. Maybe that would it be a similar type of thing. You know, I hear people, psychologists. More than values. It's beyond it's more that. than values. Okay. There is, there is a truth. There is a truth in every moment, in every relationship that is going to lead us for our highest and greatest good. That truth is within me. It is within you. Mm-hmm. It is me. It is you. It's part of consciousness. Within consciousness that is within every human being, that which allows us to be aware of the world, within consciousness resides an intuitive library of wisdom that will tell us 24-7 the thought to think, the word to speak, the action to take, that will enable us to fulfill the purpose of life. Uh, And in the human being, that inner truth, that inner wisdom is accessible through one of the four major functions of the mind, which is known as buddhi, B-U-D-D-H-I. The buddhi is our conscience. The buddhi is what Christians refer to as the Holy Spirit. It, It is part of our mind, and it acts as a mirror. It has the capacity to reflect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind, which lies beyond the conscious portion, which lies beyond the unconscious. The superconscious portion of the mind, it's not a figment of our imagination. Uh, it's not a metaphor. It is the same portion of the mind where Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies, where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations. Doesn't mean that I'm gonna become a physicist, nor does it mean that you're gonna become a songwriter. What it does mean is, whenever we have a relationship, if we can use our buddy, use our conscience to to determine our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, and if we can align our actions with that inner wisdom reflected from the superconscious portion of the mind into our conscious portion, then the consequence will enhance us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Okay. So how do you, I guess, tap into the superconscious that you're describing? Well, when your conscience tells you what's to be done and what's not to be done, do you need a PhD degree to know that it's true? <laughs> do you need a college degree to know that it's true? Do you need a mm-hmm. medical degree to know that it's true? Do you even need a high school degree to know that it's true? Mm-mm. No. So what we need to do is we need to slow down a little bit. When we are in the intersection of a relationship that requires an action that brings about a consequence, because every action brings about a consequence, this is what is referred to in yoga science as Uh, the law of karma. It became Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal reaction. So when, when I come into that intersection where a relationship takes place and I have to act, I have to speak, I have to think, if I can slow down and create a space between stimulus and response, Hmm. in that space... I have the freedom to redirect my attention to my conscience, to the buddhi. 
And the Buddha will tell me what's to be done and what's not to be done, what's to be spoken and what is not to be spoken, what is to be thought and what is not to be thought. My job is simply to be the instrument for that wisdom in the midst of that relationship for the sake of the experiment. And very often, in order for me to align my outer actions with my inner wisdom, I am ultimately going to have to sacrifice some unconscious concept like fear, like judgment or anger, insecurity, a sense of lack, some selfish desire that conflicts with my inner wisdom. So in order to do the experiment of basing my outer action on my inner wisdom, listening and serving the wisdom reflected by the conscience, I have to let go of preconceptions that are faulty. Just for the sake of the experiment, once the experiment is done, then I can stand back objectively, be the doubting Thomas, and ask myself, so Leonard, how do you feel? Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So through that experimentation process, I have felt better. So much better that I want to share it with other people. Hmm. So it's almost like you're stepping outside of yourself and you're being a third person objective without your ego feelings and saying, trying to discern what is that. So do we all have the same inner wisdom? Like, is it the same, like we would know intuitively what to do in this situation? All of us would make the same decision? Uh, No, because uh, everybody uh, has different software packages. Hmm. And so, uh, and, and everybody is uh, at a different uh, point in the trajectory. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, some, some of us uh, are on, on, that, on the trajectory uh, toward uh, that, that evolutionary trajectory of going outside, finding objects and relationships. Uh, and some have uh, come to uh, the decision that uh, uh, most of these desires that I have for objects and relationships outside of myself are very empty. Mm-hmm. I can never really experience what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm, I'm not experiencing fulfillment. And at that point, people begin to uh, uh, journey on the involutionary trajectory of going within and seeking within and finding the truth within. This is fascinating. Okay, so now as far as just, I'm going to borrow your brain momentarily. <laughs> so, for example, um, I guess... You know, as we're children, um, we're kind of molded by our our parents' thoughts and desires and actions. And depending on the type of parent you have, you may fold to that, you may rebel against that, whatever. As we get older, um, we're trying to come into our own, into our young adulthood. We're doing our own thing, raising our own children, relationships and such. But you come to a point, I think, in like your later 30s, at least early 40s, Maybe that, maybe that's, I don't know if you can maybe talk about that, but it seems that a lot of people call it a midlife crisis or whatever, where we actually start having more of that introspective thought and make those decisions based on different things. It seems to me that that is the age, the group that's very open to suggestions for dietary change, changes for taking better care of themselves, looking forward to a quality life versus a quantity of things that's in, you know, 
So that's, I'm just curious because that's about where things happened for me. I started looking at minimalism, getting rid of everything. I thought I had to buy for everyone to, to make them happy. You know, we started, we started experiential Christmases instead of buying stuff. We just go somewhere and enjoy our family um, and just our bonding time. Is that a similar type thing that you're describing or is, am I? That's correct. Uh, you know, uh, at early childhood, uh, we, we all go through somebody training. Yeah, true. Uh, and, uh, uh, the ego uh, uh, matures and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, begins to uh, take responsibility. Uh, but an awful lot of the concepts that are in our unconscious mind that the uh, ego uh, uses are faulty. So I know that... Uh, uh, from prenatal to six years of age, uh, the, the conscience is really not fully activated, uh, fully functional in human beings. We are aware as babies and young children, but we are aware uh, like a television camera, okay? And so when we are uh, determining what's to be done and what's not to be done, we look at the field that we can perceive and, and a, a large portion of the field that I, I can perceive uh, contains my mother's face. <laughs> and if not my mother's face, my father's face. Hmm. And if, if a new experience, uh, a new relationship is introduced to, to me, uh, and I'm looking at mom's face or dad's face, depending on the reaction that I can see on their face, they will be telling me whether it's safe to engage or whether there's something uh, to fear and not to engage. Uh, and, and so I'm always uh, uh, looking. And as I grow, I, I, I begin to uh, uh, learn from my siblings. I learn from my teachers, my classmates. I, why I learn from uh, politicians. I learn from celebrities. And uh, at a very young age, I'm very... Uh, impressionable, and I'm very needy, uh, and I'm very insecure. So I'm very eager to accept, I accept concepts that are being offered by other people that are patently false. So we've all had teachers that taught us that one plus two is three. And that's been great. It's worked very well for us. But we've also had uh, teachers who have taught us that one plus two is four. And because of our naivete, we accepted it, it's now stored in our unconscious mind, even today, and in certain kinds of relationships where our emotional buttons, like with food choice, uh, are pushed, uh, the go-to concept that we use is one plus two equals four. And every time we employ it, we suffer. We're in pain. So how, how does this, how could this help someone who has an eating issue, like they overeat when they're um, tired or, you know, like you were describing how you became more mindful, like, oh, I have a choice. So how does the yogi or the yoga science help with that? Like what, how do you start to evolve your decisions in your life? Like how does that process start to become more um, conscious of the superconscious? I guess? So how do you proceed from to do that? Well, one thing that's very interesting that's critically important is to recognize that all animals are subject to four primitive fountains. Four primitive fountains affect all animals. 
and those primitive fountains are for food, sex, sleep, and self-preservation. So the balance that yoga provides us and the evenness of mind that yoga provides us encourages us to make conscious discriminating choices using our conscience, our buddhi, that will help us to balance these primitive fountains. In other words, take food. We don't want too much food, and yet we don't want too little. Mm-hmm. So, so we want just the right amount that is going to uh, 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 benefit the body so that the body can act in a holistic way in service to itself and to me for the 120 years that it's designed for without pain. Mm-hmm. And same with, same with sex, not too much, not too little. And this is in thought, word, and deed. And same with sleep. We need sleep. We don't need too much sleep. We don't need too little sleep. We need just the right amount of sleep. Self-preservation is interesting because self-preservation uh, normally takes care of itself. But what we deal with uh, today, especially in our culture, is fear. The fear that we might lose what we have. The fear that we might not get what we want. And when, I am, when the mind is in conflict, I'm looking for compensation from that inner conflict because I'm not resolving it. And so when I'm not resolving that inner conflict, I'm going to look for some kind of compensation. I'm going to want to take a vacation. I'm going to want to eat something (laughs) that takes me away. Mm -hmm. And so I eat for different reasons, not for survival, really. I I eat for compensation. I eat for entertainment. Hmm. So how does someone start that process of, I almost consider it like a healing, right? Like you're removing yourself from the harmful consequences and trying to make those better judgments and or better decisions by being this third party objective. I mean, is there a, is there a sequence of events or a sequence of questions? Cause some people, they don't understand. They truly believe a certain type of food is not harmful or a certain action will have benefit. You know, they don't mind watching television for hours and hours on end. We don't even have a television anymore. I mean, there's, we've been making this, this transition, I think naturally, but how would someone begin to be more aware of what they should be doing? I guess, you know, how to elevate our consciousness, I guess. It's almost like that. I, I, I truly believe that uh, there's only one way for them to engage that type of novel idea. And that has to do with desire. Mm. Without desire, it's not going to happen. And so uh, yoga says that that desire to make those kinds of change uh, is grace that comes to us. Uh, If I have that desire uh, to have less pain in my body, uh, then I'm going to examine certain things and experiment with certain things. I'm going to change the equation of my life uh, and see what happens. I had a a brother-in-law many years ago who had lower back pain. And uh, I had lower back pain as a young person because I held my fear in my lower back. 
that that was the repository of of my fear, my emotional fear. And it was not an operative uh, condition, nor was my brother-in-law's condition an operable condition. And through my meditation and my gentle yoga and skillful action of using the buddhi, my conscience, to base outer action on inner wisdom, I reduced inner conflict, and therefore I reduced the pain in my back. So I said to him at the time, I said, I have a similar condition uh, to yours. I could teach you a few uh, easy, gentle stretches and just some uh, very uh, uh, modest uh, meditation skills that might be able to help you. And his response to me was an eye-opener. He said to me, if I didn't have the pain in my back, how would I know who I was? If he didn't have the pain in his back, how would he know who he was? So he literally identified himself as with the pain. That's right. Oh, wow. Right. And so he was not open. He did not have a desire. Now, it's interesting because I think throughout life, right, we have opportunities of grace being presented to us. And we shun it or maybe even walk by it because we're blind or we're still maybe keeping our eye in the television camera. You know, that makes me think about because I know as, as you become more aware of things, <laughs> trying to be, elevate your consciousness and, and um, yeah, that is the best way to describe it is that you start looking back, 2020s, you know, your vision back is 2020 looking backwards. It makes me think, you know, there's always these opportunities presented to you. You can walk away or you can accept them. And I think those are oftentimes that you've been presented, Grace, you know, for me as a Christian, it's God saying, here you go, Lori. You know, this is your opportunity. That is that space and time, right, between what's happened and my reaction, and that's my choice. So we're always presented, I think, an opportunity to make a, a decision that's not what we would consider at least as Christian sinful or making decisions that's harmful that's right. with poor consequences. So this is really interesting because it reminds me of a sermon that I heard years ago, that whole space between something happening in your reaction. It was very, very similar. And it just dawned on me and someone else mentioned it too, a few days ago. It's really interesting how things <laughs> present themselves like that. And boom, here we go. And so it's really interesting. What do you think about that? I think that's absolutely correct. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the key to what we're saying is that uh, uh, unless and until our actions reflect our inner wisdom, we are going to be blinded to the grace that is always with us. There was a, a sage uh, in the last century uh, uh, who said that uh, grace is always there. Mm. But in order to, it's like the wind, he said, and to, and to catch that wind, you first have to run up your sail. <laughs> so we have to take an action that conforms with our inner wisdom. Hmm. And if we are in alignment, then the universe is going to conspire to bring us some benefit. Hmm. We could call it a miracle, but really uh, people that use that kind of a word are not in tune with just the natural order of the universe because everything is interconnected. 
There are no separate objects in the universe. Everything is a shimmering vibration of particles and molecules. It's all one. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. So circumstances that happen when you think, oh, you know, the universe is conspiring against me, but other people go, wow, this is such a coincidence or something. But there's, there's set in motion different actions that we take, right? So every decision gets us to where we are in our present moment even though it's fleeting (laughs) obstacles are a boon Hmm. uh, if we know how to uh, dance with it Hmm. so i guess the kind of the one of the tools that you can use would be constantly asking questions right and saying um but taking your feelings out of it's typical because many of us respond by our feelings and our um emotional (laughs) you know navigation tools are often and our thinking. <laughs> and our thinking, huh? Because uh, thinking and language is enslaving. We are so enslaved by thinking and, and the language, the limitations of language. Uh, uh, we speak English, and English and German uh, are, are, language, are languages of materiality. There's very little uh, 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 contained in English and, and German about spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... We're so uh, uh, we're so centered on materiality that we forget that we have another aspect of us that lies beneath the surface. In hmm. speech. So I'm going to ask you a little bit deeper question. What do you think happens to us when we die? Nothing. We Nothing. still live in our habit patterns, both here and hereafter. Hmm. So. so- so relationships, if, if you would, just for a moment. Yeah. So re- every relationship uh, uh, is seen from a yogic perspective. Every relationship is seen as the consequence of a previous action, mm-hmm. providing us the perfect opportunity to self-examine and let go of some faulty concept that we've been carrying around. Okay. And so... Uh, at death, death is not annihilation. Death is merely separation of the conscious mind, breath, body, and senses from the unconscious mind and the soul, which is consciousness itself, the Christ, so to speak, in Christian terminology. Mm-hmm. And so the unconscious mind, still connected to consciousness, exists in the hereafter, but it is not considered immortal because the unconscious mind is changeable. It's not, I mean, immortal in the sense of its character or immortal as in sense of its existence? Of its existence. Okay. It's considered semi-immortal because, okay. it, because it exists here in time and space, mm-hmm. with the conscious mind, the mm-hmm. breath, the body, and the senses. But after death, the unconscious mind still exists and goes into a rest state, still connected to consciousness. Hmm. Okay. And then it stays there? I mean, that's it's the end? Well, uh, Every, everything uh, is a microcosm or a macrocosm of everything else. So what happens to us in sleep? My experience is 
that if I'm skillful during the day and I base my outer action on my inner wisdom, mm -hmm. when I sleep, I'll have a pretty good night's sleep. I'll sleep soundly. Mm -hmm. And if I dream, I'll, I'll have pleasant dreams. On the other hand, if I'm unskillful during the day and I act, speak, and think in ways that conflict with my own inner wisdom, and then I go to sleep, I might have a hard time falling asleep. I might have a fitful night's sleep. And if I dream, I could have very uh, uh, anxiety-ridden dreams. Hmm. And yet, regardless of the quality of the night's sleep, what happens in the morning? Well, I just wake up. Nothing has really changed other than rest or lack thereof. And I just pick up in the morning where I left off the night before. I have the same wife. I have the same husband. I have the same children. I have the same job. I have the same bank account. I have the same duties and responsibilities. I just pick up in the morning where I left off the night before. Huh. So the unconscious mind at death goes into a rest state connected to consciousness. Consciousness when we go to sleep, pick small little pieces of the unconscious mind and creates a little soap opera. We call them dreams. Hmm. So based on the life that has just been led, based on the contents of the unconscious mind, consciousness will create little soap operas that it will be aware of because it cannot be aware. Consciousness cannot no longer be aware of sense objects because it doesn't have a body, has no mm -hmm. senses, just right. the just mind. Right. And the soul is consciousness. It's awareness. The only thing it has to be aware of is the unconscious mind. Hmm. So it pieces together small aspects of the unconscious mind, and we dream. We have, there are dreams. Consciousness has dreams during the sleep of death, so to speak. And based on the contents of the unconscious mind, consciousness will experience heaven. Hmm. Consciousness will experience hell. Oh, wow. Just as we, in, in this life, experience pleasant dreams and nightmares. That is interesting because, okay, so now this is, this is wisdom that you found from studying yoga right? The science of yoga and you're bringing it forward here. Now for someone, let's say, um, for example, when I was deployed overseas in the Middle East um, in 2007 to 8, um, I had nightmares for almost five months, every single night, the same nightmare, horrible, horrible nightmare. And um, it was the same dream and it's very vivid and very disturbing. Um, but then when I came home, it was gone and I never had it again. So could I just ask one question? Mm -hmm. That recurring dream. Mm -hmm. Could you describe in one word the emotional residue of that recurring dream? The emotional residue the that I would have every day or now? No, then. Then. 
It was... Um, you were aware of what emotion? Unease. Mm -hmm. It was not... It was... Uh, well, unease. Un Some, something was not right. Like evil. I would say unease and evil. How did that make you feel? Anxious. Go ahead. I wanted to go home. <laughs> so would you say fear? I would say borderline fear, but not true fear. It was more of like, I know this is not right. And I understand that I need to be home. Right. So, and once I got home, I was fine. Um, I've always been very perceptive with dreams. So yes. when, you know, when I was pregnant with my oldest, my Emily, I would dream that someone shot me and ripped her out of my stomach. Cause I was, I knew, I understood that was fear that I was going to lose a pregnancy or something. And I was fine or that she wasn't healthy. Um, but that, this dream was in the context, it was spiritual in nature and very disturbing. <laughs> so, so, but it was really interesting. Yes. It's very interesting. It grabs our yeah. attention. So in, in yoga science, every fear must be examined. Every fear must be examined. And fear uh, always takes one of two forms. First form is, I'm afraid I might lose what I have. Or, I'm afraid I might not get what I want. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And okay. so that whole inquiry uh, is all about the profound question, who am I? Who am I who is aware of fear? Who am I who is aware of the fear uh, that I might lose something? Who am I who is aware uh, of the fear of not getting what I want? Hmm. So you, you, you mentioned early in our conversation about changing the perspective to a higher perspective. Mm -hmm. So Einstein says that a problem cannot be solved on the level at which it arises, it has to be solved on the higher level. Mm, so what yoga science uh, does, it does give us a higher perspective. It reintroduces us to ourselves. Mm. You see, you are not Laurie, you mm. are not this body, you are not even Laurie's mind or personality, because they are all subject to change, death, decay, or decomposition. And yet within you and within me, there is something that is, has never changed. For every day of our lives, based on our earliest memories, and, and what we, would, we might call that is I am. So even though I used to be short, now I'm tall. Once I was heavy, now I'm thin. Some days I'm calm, some days I'm stressed. Sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm forgiving. Sometimes I'm fearful, sometimes I'm fearless. In the midst of all of those pairs of opposites and all that change in this world of relativity, there is something about each of us that has remained the same. And that is I am. So what the sages say is that I am-ness, that beingness, that awareness that is within you, that has always been with you, existed before birth. And it exists after death. It's the light of Christ that is within you, that is you, 
having this human experience in time and space through a mind-body-sense complex that has relationships, that requires actions, that brings about consequences. Mm -hmm. So what do you think... So each of us have the this presence. When people make, there's like evil things that happen. Like, I mean, what is that? Is that the the sick mind not so, I mean, so dispelling? Evil, what evil is that? Evil, evil is a concept. Okay. Evil, evil is just a concept. So, uh, as I mentioned before when outer actions conflict with inner wisdom, when I do not use my conscience, when I do not use the Holy Spirit, when I do not use the buddhi, there is a conflict in the mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I create conflict in my mind because of unskillful action, and you do the same, Mm And everybody in our town does the same. And everybody in our state does the same. Very few people uh, uh, are using their buddy, using their conscience to base their thoughts, words, and actions, you see. So I'm creating conflict. You're creating conflict. Everybody in the town is creating conflict. Everybody in the, in the state is creating, everybody in the country. So when, you're, when a, uh, a, a point is reached, of, of intense conflict, the consciousness of humanity is asked to share a, a shared painful experience. And we call that evil. Evil is merely the shadow of inattention. When I do not give my attention to the wisdom that is within me, that is me, and counsel within to know what's to be done, what's to be said, and what's to be thought, when I am in conflict with that, mm-hmm. outside, we have a shared relationship with something that is terribly painful. And we label it evil. We call it Adolf Hitler, we call it Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a, there's a lot. We went very deep in that one. Um, so now I want to kind of just backtrack a little bit. And looking now, you have the Institute. And can you give me an idea of what brought you to that point that you felt you needed a place to share this with someone? And then we can kind of see how you're actually using this to help, for example, physicians who desperately need help. We, we ignore that inner wisdom a lot. So I would love thinking that we know in our conscious mind what to do, but we really don't. So I'm curious, where, what brought you to that point of saying, you know, I need a place to bring people to share what you've learned? So my teacher, Swami Rama of the Hamayas, uh, instructed me to start teaching six months before he died. Uh, you know, essentially, uh, Leonard has a, a rather shy personality. I never, ever, ever saw myself uh, as qualified 
to represent this teaching and this lineage. Uh, but I did respect my teacher. He was sort of, well, I always considered him uh, <clears throat> like a scoutmaster. When I was a kid, I was in scouts. I was in Cub Scouts. I was in Boy Scouts. I loved to learn uh, through, through the scouting experience. And that's the way Swami Rama presented the teaching to me, as if he were my scoutmaster. And he said, okay, well, here it is. You know, uh, you're not going to know the truth of this unless you experiment with it, because you might believe me, but what I'm telling you is just hearsay. So you don't really know if it's true or if it's not true until you experiment with it. I like that. I could relate to that. Uh, and so I, I started experimenting. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't over my shoulder looking. I, I was experiencing the truth. Uh, and I, it made me feel better. So uh, at a certain point, uh, uh, I got a letter from him in India and all he said in the letter was, start teaching now. I didn't know what to teach. I didn't know where to teach. Uh, uh, and the only thing that I felt qualified to teach was what I practiced. Hmm. So, and that led you to the Institute? And how did, it, how did you first start? I mean, this, you do a lot of different things. So what exactly was your, your starting point? I sat down in front of the computer. I had just bought my first computer and I just poured out from my mind, through my hands, uh, onto the keyboard. I just uh, poured out everything that I did during the week, all these different practices. And uh, uh, there was a bit of a, uh, a framework to it. There were six basic categories to it that became uh, the six weeks of a course that I taught. Hmm. And the more that I taught, I got more and more feedback from students. I learned more myself. And that became uh, the outline for the book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, which was the curriculum uh, that went along with the course. Oh, very cool. So now you're in Albany, New York. Yes. Okay. Well, outside, and, outside in the foothills of uh, the the, foot uh, Berkshire Mountains. Right yeah, next to uh, Massachusetts. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, so is it cold there today? <laughs> well, it's not real warm. <laughs> <laughs> so very fair enough. <laughs> so as far as what you have done with physicians, can we kind of pry into what you've learned from, you know, the countless of folks that walked through your doors that came with, I don't know, broken spirits and you know, burnout and stress. And I mean, it just seemed just being in your presence calms me. So I can, I tend to be a little more, me. <laughs> you know, so I'm curious what, what you've found to be a common denominator <clears throat> as far as a cause, <clears throat> excuse me, of a lot of our issues that we have in medicine. I have my thoughts, but I would love to hear your thoughts. So, uh, the ancient, Sanskrit language, the, the ancient language of India did not have the word stress. It did not, it, the language did not contain the word stress. It had a word called avidya, avidya. Uh, and 
it means ignorance. And so when I have a relationship that requires an action that brings about a consequence that makes me feel terrible, these ancient women and men realized you feel terrible as the consequence of the action because you ignored your own inner wisdom in the process of making a choice. So if you don't ignore yourself, if you, if you do recognize that you are a citizen of two worlds, you're a citizen of the material world, you have a body, you have a mind, you have thoughts, desires, emotions, concepts, uh, but you're also spirit. You are pure consciousness, wisdom, and bliss, having a human experience. You're a citizen of two worlds. If we can unite the two worlds while we're in a relationship, counseling within, taking that inner wisdom and using this mind-body-sense complex as the laboratory for the experiment to, to issue forth this subtle inner wisdom through this physical body, mind-sense complex, then I won't experience stress. Stress is like uh, uh, an early warning system it's like radar. Uh, I often talk about Neil Armstrong, the, the first human being on the moon. He, was, he, he, he flew this lunar module from the mothership down to the surface of, uh, uh, of the moon. It's just uh, awesome to even just think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and as he's flying this, uh, you know, this little lunar module, it's like an ash can. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a replica of it uh, in Washington at the Space uh, Aeronautical and Space Museum. Uh, he had all these uh, onboard computers that were reading all sorts of telemetry, all sorts of information. And that information was radioed back to Houston to the Space Center so that Armstrong, the astronaut, could fire his retro rockets in a certain sequence so that the lunar module could have a soft, safe landing. Mm -hmm. So th that's what we uh, need to do. We, we have the telemetry coming to us through our conscience, through our body, through the Holy Spirit, but we, we just don't listen to it. We're so tantalized by the ego and by the senses and by the unconscious mind and, and the culture. And to be very honest, we're trained to be dependent on experts outside of ourselves. We, we, we are taught not to rely on ourselves. Hmm. And we suffer because of it. Okay. So physicians are very good at ignoring That's our right. inner <laughs> Well, because they have this purpose. They're going to save the world. They're going to save you. Right. They're going to save lives. Right. You see, they're gladiators. And, they, and, 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 and most people who are attracted to this are, are, you know, they're just, they're wonderful people. And, and this, is a, this is a, you know, this is a generalization, but they do <laughs> want to help humanity. And that's a tremendous responsibility. And, they, and they're very precise. They, and they have that in, in their mind. They have very, you know, in speaking about Ayurveda, they have a lot of pitta, a lot of fire, a lot of intellect. So they're very precise and, and, they're, and they're very responsible. And, 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 then, and then the life happens. Mm -hmm. 
and and politics happen and uh and 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 they, and they have to deal with things that they're that they're not uh, prepared for hmm. and so and so they too look for compensation with this with physician burnout i mean it's shocking to even verbalize you know it's not just that uh, people have a drink every now and then, uh, you know, uh, people are uh, really uh, uh, desperate and, and, and many are committing suicide and, 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 and others uh, are uh, uh, addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. These are, these are uh, uh, our, our physicians. So my teacher, Swami Rama, came to the West from India on the instruction of his teacher, his mission was to unite Eastern philosophy and Western medical uh, science. Huh. And when he said to start teaching, I took his mission and some of my students were docs and they experienced the profound nature of yoga science and just asked the question, what do you think about uh, applying to the AMA to see if we can uh, get certification to teach physicians. I said, great, let's try it. <laughs> that was 10 years ago. And you're still going. We're still going. So what kind of changes have you seen in these physicians who come through the course and really take to heart what you're teaching? What, has there been any um, There's some really big, significant big stories? Big changes, big changes. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of uh, couple of things uh, that are working in our favor. Mm. Okay. Uh, one of the uh, main things is there are a lot more women today than there were ten years ago. So, uh, you know, every human being is both male and female. Male, insofar as hunter gatherer, we we uh, operate in the world, but female is inwardly directive and de- intuitive. And the, and the female gender is sort of hardwire, hardwired for intuition because they are, they are the, uh, the birth givers. They are the child uh, rearing uh, 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 gender. And so women are bringing that feminine intuitive wisdom to bear in medicine. That's number one. Number two... Uh, there are more uh, Asian and uh, Indian uh, uh, people who are now going into medicine. Many of them have had a history, uh, family history, a cultural history, much more of a familiarity with yoga and yoga concepts from the East than Western, uh, the Western male paradigm of, uh, of uh, yesterday's medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And plus the fact, you, you add, uh, add to that recipe uh, the crisis in healthcare and how things are just, uh, you know, it, it, everything is coming apart. It's just uh, there, there's a lot of destruction that's going on within, you know, with destruction of the form that existed 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And that is causing a tremendous amount of angst in the mind uh, of people, and to their credit, they they've looked around at the matrix 
and they see that uh, pharmacology is not the answer. They can see that spending more money is not the answer. So they are willing to go outside the box. They're willing to think outside the matrix. And yoga science right now is outside the matrix. Hmm. But, yeah, it, I... but, it's been, but it has received an invitation to step inside the matrix. By the working with physicians, but I also read somewhere that you guys are working on research actually as well. Yes, yes. That's really cool. Yeah, we just started, uh, uh, we we had done a retrospective uh, study back Mm -hmm. in time that provided, you know, reproducible uh, uh, findings, uh, all very profound, wonderful uh, connection between the mind and body. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just this last year uh, at our uh, CME conference, uh, we invited uh, uh, the whole class, but uh, 26 uh, of, the, uh, of the students committed uh, to, uh, to do the program for six months. Mm. Uh, and we're just, uh, just completing our sixth month now. Oh, wow. It, it will be an ongoing study. Cool. So it's very thrilling. That is exciting. I, I love the science because that is where you're going to find the, vid- the validity and the acceptance by right. traditional Western medicine right. practitioners. So, that's okay. We're fine with yeah. that. Yeah, well, because obviously it's going to prove true. I mean, just like when I tell people to eat a plant-based diet, right. I'm like, I've never seen anything negative right. and it changes lives. Yeah. Go for it. You know, it's kind of like your, your teacher told you, well, Go do it. See what you find. And I find that that's the truth every time. So that's, I think, certainly aligning my practice with nutrition and moving in that direction. What's interesting about that is that led to a path of being more aware of actions and consequences outside of myself, the environment, animals, um, my choices to feed my family long-term health consequences there, my mood changes affecting the person I open the door for or not, you know, to let someone in. You know, those type of things have small, consequences. maybe that one smile saves a life. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that was the first, uh, that was the first yoga that I practiced. I started making food choices. I, be, uh, uh, I had, uh, when, when we moved out to the country, uh, uh, we started, uh, raising our own food. We, we uh, had chickens, we had uh, sheep, we had goats, because we didn't want uh, uh, hormones uh, and we didn't want antibiotics in, in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having to uh, take a sentient life to feed a sentient life, uh, it was, it, it was a, a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, I have, I have, if you have time, I have a, a, a yeah, please. just a very personal uh, story. Uh, so uh, at the time, uh, every uh, a Sunday uh, uh, afternoon, uh, I would go uh, out and uh, run around and try to catch a couple of chickens. My wife, Janice, was in the house, in the kitchen, with a big vat of uh, a pot of water that she was boiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, w- I would catch and kill uh, the chickens and then bring them in and 
dunk them into the water. The hot water would uh, help to release the feathers. And then we had uh, newspaper uh, uh, all over the kitchen floor and we would clean the chickens and uh, I, I would uh, uh, prepare them and then we would freeze them uh, for the week and then we would eat them. Uh, I had one uh, little, uh, she, she was a fancy, uh, uh, she was uh, an Egyptian Fayumi. <laughs> uh, that, that was her uh, breed. And she, she was uh, small and she was very fast, <laughs> very fast. Her name was Blackie. And uh, she was like a scampering halfback on a, on a football team. She, she could make cuts uh, uh, that would, you know, you couldn't even figure out which way she was going. So after, a, and so it was a little bit of sport. I always uh, tried to catch Blackie and I never could. But after a couple of years, she slowed down. And one Sunday I caught her and I took her down to the barn. At the time, uh, I would uh, uh, kill the chicken. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, it's a kosher kill where you slit the jugular uh, vein and as the heart beats, it pumps out the blood. It's supposed to be a clean, humane way of uh, taking the life of the bird. So I had a killing cone, which was a, a gallon plastic uh, jug of milk turned upside down, cut out. And I had the bird and I placed the bird head down uh, into the killing cone, pulled the head out through the bottom. I held the head, opened up the mouth a little bit. I had my knife and I put the knife into the mouth of the bird ready to uh, 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 do what I had to do. Mm -hmm. And her eye met my eye. And I just stood there transfixed, which seemed like an eternity. I assume it was just a few seconds. But her eye was on my eye. My eye was on hers. There was total silence. And then this scream came out of her that I had never heard before. It was, uh, it was this plaintive scream that every hair on, on my arm stood straight up like little soldiers. It, it was profound. And Janice, who was in the house, she heard the same thing. Wow. And I knew that it was over. I, I could no longer take uh, a, a life to feed a life. Right. I took the knife out. I let her go. She lived uh, a long, uh, a joyous life. <laughs> I would feed her uh, uh, oatmeal and uh, crack corn uh, during the winter uh, in the mornings. <laughs> she was a pet. Wow. And wow. then so we became vegetarians. Wow. You know, it's really fascinating how, um, however you enter the plant-based eating, something like that, or even through health reasons, how you tend to gravitate towards this consciousness of this is a living being. Now to equate them with equal to human lives, that's debatable depending on your philosophies and beliefs or whatever. And that's fine. I'm not saying that, but it's, you can't deny that they're in pain, that they're feeling, I mean, they our cat, they yeah, fear. they have fear. And I, and that hormone goes into that flesh. Yeah. At death. 
They know they're dying. And then we ingest that. Mm -hmm. Not healthy. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I, I can't, I can't deny that. Um, but people I mean, have to be ready. They have to be ready. So mm -hmm. what I tell people is, this is what I do. You can make your own choices. And if you eat flesh at this time, that's okay. But if you meditate every day and you make conscious discriminating choices, I cannot guarantee that at some point you are going to go to a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I... I... Yeah. Are just thinking, I mean, people, it's really interesting how you commune with nature, right? You feel fulfilled and at ease. And that's why I love running every day on trails and just the sound of water and just the green and the fresh air. And you can't not think about your actions and how, you know, what we're doing to our, our stomachs and our greed of wanting, you know, people like the taste of flesh and things like that, how that impacts our future world, our oceans, our skies with pollution. I mean, there's just so much that's going on that you just can't ignore. You're going to get to the point where you're going to be forced to make a decision to eat differently because we can't sustain it. We have, you know, finite resources in the world, or you're going to make it by choice because you decided, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't walk through a slaughterhouse without, changing your mind. I mean, I remember as a kid, my grandmother was a bookkeeper and she was a bookkeeper for a slaughterhouse, uh, and a big one. Mm -hmm. And I remember going as a kid and we'd stay with the summers with her and we'd go to work with her sometimes. And in the lunchroom, um, they, they, they had a tongue of a cow and it, to me, it was so repulsive that I, even still, I get nauseous thinking about it. The thought of eating that just, it just so disgusted me, but it was so interesting to me that I didn't put together, well, what are these other parts that I'm eating? That's you know, right. what, is, what am I'm still eating the animal? I'm just choosing which part. Right. So, you know, it's, it's just really fascinating how your brain can, I guess by choice, remain ignorant right. or perceived ignorance. I don't know. I don't think it's really ignorant, right? It's a choice to ignore something. Yes. It really is. Well, that's what ignorance means. It means just that you're ignoring it. Right. That's exactly. what it means. Hmm. Doesn't mean that you're dumb. Doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity to make a better choice. Right. But as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I no longer eat food that I love or that my senses love, that my tongue loves, uh, or other people loves, love. I, I eat food that loves me. That hmm. my eyes, my ears, my heart, my lungs, my spleen, my pancreas, my gallbladder. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you get to, and you have a physicians and they're there, what is some of the things you did? Um, the doctor that introduced us, I, I don't want to mention because I don't know if she'd be okay with that, but she mentioned some type of practice. It's like a one minute something focus. Yes. That you, what is that exactly? What What is that that maybe we could share with someone here today? Yeah, that would be great. Sure. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, it only takes 60 seconds and it can be very profound. You can do it any time during the day. Uh, the idea is that you want to focus the energy of the mind on one object to the exclusion of everything else. And so at the bridge between the two nostrils where the nostrils meet the upper lip is a wonderful spot to 
be aware of the inhalation and the exhalation. You can feel it, so that helps focus your attention. Mm-hmm. So uh, if the folks uh, who are, are uh, watching or listening uh, uh, want to try and you're comfortable closing your eyes, just sit with your head, neck, and trunk straight. And if, you, if, you, if you'd like, uh, make the uh, okay sign with the thumb and the index finger. We call that the finger lock, but all it does scientifically, it, it creates a closed electrical circuit so that it keeps energy in the body. And then you can place the palms on your thighs or on the desk, wherever you are. And then you bring your attention to the bridge between the two nostrils. You listen to the inhalation and the exhalation, inhalation and exhalation. Now, we're going to do this for 60 seconds. Okay. If any uninvited thought or image or sound comes into your awareness that competes with your awareness of the breath, simply honor and witness and then sacrifice the thought, the image, or the sound, and then bring the mind back to the breath. And we're going to do this for 60 seconds, starting now. and gently open your eyes. That was really interesting. How so? Well, there's construction outside, but Uh it got to a point, like you were saying, just, I like the word sacrifice. You just sacrifice it to let it go. You just let it go, let it move it on. But then as you do that, you don't hear it anymore. And then it's almost like, um, It's like you become aware of a kind of a, hmm, it's not a heavy feeling, but like a blanket around you, mm-hmm. if that's the best way to describe it. At least that's what I experienced. Like you could feel, I don't know, like your body was draped and then it draped over your arms and your legs just by focusing on your breathing. That was only 60 seconds. Is so, that a common response? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's great. Hmm. So, uh, uh, a, a lot of yoga science is analogous to engineering science. So in engineering, uh, there's this uh, uh, stereotypical uh, problem uh, between the signal and the noise. 
So we want to hear the signal, but the, the signal uh, cannot be made any louder. So how can you pay attention to the signal with all this noise? So what engineering does, it says they, they turn down the volume of the noise, which automatically, relatively speaking, will uh, uh, accentuate the, uh, the sound of the signal. And so for 60 seconds, our inner wisdom is telling us to meditate for 60 seconds. That's going to lead us for our highest and greatest good. That means any other thought, any other word, any other action is to be honored, witnessed, and sacrificed so that outer action can reflect inner wisdom. And I love the word sacrifice uh, because it, it comes from the Italian, uh, of the Latin, sacrifaci, to make sacred. So I'm aware of this thought. I'm aware of this sound because of the construction. It's a, I have a relationship with, with it, but how am I going to make my relationship with it sacred? Well, my inner wisdom is telling me to, uh, to pay attention to the breath. So when this uninvited sound from the construction comes or a thought, if I sacrifice it, then I'm making it sacred. So that I can, so that the mind can focus on the breath. Hmm. Now, when you describe for me, I'm, I'm I like imagery. So for me, sacrifice was like shutting the window, <laughs> or you know, coloring it like it's like taking a hand and wiping the slate, like erasing it. That would be for me. Like I have to visually take that sound and make it. <laughs> I don't know if that's, if that's the way my brain works, but that's just how I had to do it. So is there other ways, you know, for me, it's a visual shutting down or sacrifice. Are there other ways that people, if they're struggling to well, quiet? Well, sure. you this? know, any, any uh, 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 comforting uh, idea uh, of God or, or the supreme reality that you're most comfortable with from the, whatever tradition you've been raised uh, you can offer it to Jesus, you can offer it to Mary, you can offer it to Allah, you can offer it to Ganesh, uh, you can offer it uh, to God, you can offer it to the universe, you can offer it to Divine Mother, what, whatever you feel comfortable with for the individual. Uh, in yoga, there really is no good and there is no bad. So those interceding uninvited thoughts or images or sounds are coming to us to help us unite our outer action with our inner wisdom so we can unencumber ourselves, unencumber ourselves of the inability to focus our attention. Hmm. That's Focusing our attention is, is critically important uh, in the process of being happy, of being healthy, of, of uh, gaining willpower, mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting, we automatically, the mind, not we, but the mind automatically focuses on one object whenever we fall in love. Hmm. Whenever we love something, we love it because the energy of the mind is focused on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The challenge for the human being is the ego seeing this 
attributes the happiness and the fullness and the contentedness of love to the object. Oh, it's your wife that made you happy. Oh, it's your husband that made you happy. Oh, it's the child that made you happy. Oh, it's the new car that made you happy. But there is no object and there is no relationship in the material world that is subject to change, death, decay, or decomposition that has any power to make you happy. For happiness is your essential nature. It is the nature of the Christ that is within you, that is you, in Christian terminology, that is fullness and bliss without a sense of lack. That is really interesting because as a Christian, right, for me, my faith brings me peace, even in turbulent times, because I feel, you know, I believe that you're exactly right. Like it's um, the Holy Spirit is guiding me. And so I have someone who has my back. You know what I mean? So it's not just me trying to make this decision by myself. It's, it's um, an infinite power that is well, <laughs> way more wise than I am in that sense and using that term. So I feel like that's the piece that allows me to sit back and go, I can make these better decisions right. that don't conflict. The more that you do, the more that you do make those better decisions mm-hmm. based on this inner wisdom of this uh, uh, compassionate force, this wisdom that is within you, that is you, the more you, the more the personality that we refer to as Laurie or Leonard can conform action to that wisdom, at a certain point, we annihilate the space between the two. This is what sainthood is all about, becoming one with the Father. Mm-hmm. That, and it's really very interesting that you say that because... There are people that I've met in my walk, in my faith, and in places I've been that you just sit there and you're mesmerized because they're just like, I don't know. It's like um, exactly what you're describing. They they become the Christ-like to the degree that they're different, that you're looking at them and they're like, they do things differently. They think things differently. They act differently, regardless of the circumstances and it's utterly fascinating to meet these people because you're just intrigued. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless you're the type of person that is more interested in fulfilling the desire to go to Las Vegas for the week. <laughs> In which case, you probably wouldn't have a relationship with that person. Right. Because you're too busy. And that's okay. That's all part of the perfection. This is not a judgment or anything. Right. But you have to be ready for it. But it is interesting because I can see where this practice of meditation of just focusing, especially in today's world, technology and being, you know, many people competing for our, you know, our thoughts and our attention. um, It makes us more mindful in the present with our relationships, with our work, with our activities, you know, am I, um, you know, when I'm having dinner with my husband, it's not, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not thinking of what I need to do. Are you really there? Yeah. So it's interesting though, that I was able to focus on him and provide him what those right actions are going to bring, I feel a balance and peace in a relationship. So that's really fascinating. 
Good. I have a feeling we could talk a long time. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> you poor thing. <laughs> so much to the mini layers here. Um, so you do have, you do offer um, two upcoming events. Could you tell us about that? And I'll per- certainly put links um, below everyone who wants to click and who are interested. Could you tell us about what those are? Okay, sure. We have a summer retreat. It's in uh, July, third week. I think it's the 19th through uh, the 22nd. And the core curriculum of the heart and science of yoga is presented. It's sort of like a boot camp. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see people come. You see the burdens of the world that they're carrying with them. But by the time that they leave, just a few days later, it's like they're floating. It's, it's, it's very lovely. It's very rewarding. So that's, uh, that's the uh, 19th to the 22nd uh, of July. Uh, and then, uh, and it's available to, to physicians and nurses for uh, continuing medical education uh, credits, as well as contact hours for the nurses. Uh, and then in October, 23 through 27, uh, at the Cranwell Resort and Spa in Lenox, Massachusetts. The retreat that we have in July is at uh, the Home Center in Averill Park, New York, in upstate New York. And right over the, uh, the border, it's about an hour from uh, the American Meditation Institute, is the Cranwell Resort. And that's where uh, our physician uh, and healthcare uh, provider uh, conference uh, takes place. It's a week long, uh, and we have other uh, uh, presenters who have been practicing yoga science uh, within their own specialty. So we're gonna have uh, 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 Dr. Uh, Susan Lord, who will be talking about food as medicine, uh, where we're gonna be talking a lot about plant-based. And by the way, at at both the retreat and uh, the uh, physician's conference, we prepare a, a complete uh, plant-based uh, uh, menu. Uh, we provide it here, and uh, the folks at the Cranwell, uh, the, the people in, in the kitchen, this is our 10th year with them, and uh, uh, they, they cook to our specifications. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. Uh, mm. um, so uh, that... That takes place. Uh, Susan Lord will be doing food as medicine. Uh, Mark Pettis, uh, uh, a nephrologist, uh, will be talking about epigenomics, which mm. is very, very interesting about uh, these epigenetic marks, these these on-off switches. You know, food uh, 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 genetics is not destiny. You know, it might mm. be propensity, but it's not destiny. We can turn these switches off through lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. It's all yoga. It's all yoga. Mm-hmm. And not only that, though, when we're pregnant or even before we conceive and then you're pregnant, you're turning on switches for your offspring to have long-term consequences for their health. I mean, you're right. Epigenetics is fascinating. And so is the microbiome. I think that is another (laughs) mind-blowing thing that um, these little creatures can actually affect our emotions. And are we feeding those correctly? Right. So now that goes back to a lot of different things you're describing. So that's really cool. So is there any, I know I've kept you a long time. Is there any one last bit of advice that you may have for someone who really is feeling a calling to or pulling to 
move forward with some type of yoga science practice? I mean, how should they get started? It would be most helpful to find a teacher that you uh, that find a teacher who represents uh, a lineage hmm. uh, of women and men who have worked with the kinds of practices. The, the lineage that we teach from is the oldest continuous spiritual tradition in the world. It's uh, five, 6,000 years old. It's before recorded history. Uh, hmm. And the women and men who have preceded me, they are uh, giving testimony through me that it works. It's practical, it's commonsensical, it engenders self-reliance and it connects us with our inner wisdom so that we can make sense of all of everything that's going on in the world. Does that teacher need to be physically present or can they do something with you, for example, if they like what they heard online with you or is something they can do that way? Sure. Yeah, I would invite people, you know, if, if people re relate to uh, me through uh, uh, this conversation, sure, contact me at uh, AmericanMeditation.org, uh, and I'd be happy to uh, uh, speak uh, the email. If, can I give an email? Uh, yes, please, of course. Anything you want me to, to, to add on here, I will. The email is ami at AmericanMeditation.org, and that goes right to me, and I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Cool. No, I think you definitely will intrigue and interest people. It's fascinating I also, to me. I also would like to uh, uh, state a, uh, a little thanks uh, to uh, Dr. Kristen Calmer, who uh, uh, contacted you originally. She's a, she's a doc in, in Cleveland, Ohio. She is very interested in, uh, in both uh, plant-based diet and yoga science, and it's her passion and uh, uh, she reached out to you uh, uh, in an attempt to, uh, to grow uh, both teachings of the plant-based, but also uh, the yoga science. So I, mm -hmm. I want to thank her for putting us together. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think your message should be um, shared because I, I think it's, I don't know how to describe this. So it's like, um, it's a power, right? That we can all harness um, and it's and it's not um, it's not doesn't make anyone defensive. It doesn't make someone because I'm if I'm coming to you from as a Christian, there are beliefs and held judgments already. Um, versus someone who comes to you and speak yoga science, it's like, hmm, what is this? But you you hold very similar um, traditions and thoughts and activities, and it kind of melts together. It's really very interesting to see that. So for someone who maybe struggles with traditional religion or different things like that, I think this is a great avenue to start in finding that, that inner wisdom that you're describing. I think that's a really nice segue into. It's also, it's also great for atheists and agnostics. <laughs> exactly. We'll leave it open for them as well. Even themselves. Right? <laughs> True. Well, I could, we could talk philosophy on that, but you know, for me, it's like this world is too organized and too, it's too incredible to be by accident. And that's how my, that's my belief. But, you know, people can assume what they like. But for me, it's at peace when I understand that there's more to this than I'll ever understand. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm well, just doing the time focusing on any one thing to even examine it. 
Right. We're always looking to change the channel, change the channel, change. Right. The channel. That is interesting too. Like how you learn to find the one thing I feel that we were all here to put, you know, we're here to, for a purpose. Right. And I think when you find that purpose, it's like a hand in a glove mm-hmm. and it's like, Oh, my thoughts, my emotions, my movements coincide to this really cool future. That's kind of what happened with the, you know, becoming a doctor. It was like, yes, this is it. Cause I, I went to medical school with three little kids. They were Emily, let's see, Emily was five. My boys were three and 10 months when I started a long time ago. And now they're 24, 22, almost 20. And, you know, one's in medical school, but that, that finally, when I went to medical school, even though it was difficult, was like, it was like the glove on my hands. Like I was meant here to that's beautiful. To do that. You know what I mean? It's just really, it's really cool. So I think that's it with plant-based eating, right? It's mm-hmm. bringing now this other element with nutrition and healing outside of drugs that, you know, are a great band-aid on occasion, but there's more to it. It's a foundation. It's just really, I don't know. It's like if your mind expands, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, I guess it's your consciousness, right? Right. It expands your consciousness. It makes the unconscious conscious. Right. You're probably going, oh, this new, this new little baby in the yogi side. <laughs> like, it's like, Whoa. all right, that's really cool. Well, thank you so much, Leonard, for your wisdom and your time and your thoughts and taking my deeper questions. I mean, geez, I think you're my first guest I've ever asked, what do you think happens after death? <laughs> and you just went with it. <laughs> I do appreciate that. And so, cause those are questions that a lot of us ask, you know, a lot of talk about fear and That's right. death That's right. and different things. Yeah. I don't, I don't fear death at all. I just, I just don't, I'm, I'm just don't want to suffer <laughs> on the way. <laughs> That's if I can pray that and that be accepted all great. <laughs> we'll be good. But, um, well, thank you so much. And maybe we can do this again as, as I make it through the encyclopedia. <laughs> of your book because this is for me I, you know if you have any questions or need for clarification it's yeah. readable the book is readable yeah it is readable but for me my brain starts going in different directions because i start thinking about things and trying to feel well where was this in my life where did i see this you know kind of the evidence of it kind of pokes holes at you right it's mm-hmm. kind of like so then if that if that's the case then put down the book and give me a call huh that's a great question We'll have a talk about it. <laughs> well, that would be really cool. I, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do that for sure. Because okay. I think um, I think it's important. Um, there's something obviously here that I'm drawn to and that um, it's fascinating. I really appreciate that. So, so do I. Thank you so much. 